Those of you online, those of you in the room, good to see you. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to walk us through the text this morning. We're in the middle of the book of John. It's kind of a fun place to jump in if you're here for the first week, first couple of weeks. Uh, we're just, Jesus did some stuff, he's doing some stuff, and he's going to keep doing stuff. That's kind of how the book of John's going so far. So you're right in the middle of Jesus doing stuff. That's what's going on. Uh, but in all, all seriousness, a couple weeks ago, I was up at middle school camp, and you know, I like to think of myself as a pretty a resilient person who doesn't cave to peer pressure all that much, uh, but I was gravely disappointed in myself when um, the last evening of the camp, they're kind of doing this talent show thing. I'll sit in the back, and I don't know if Andrew Manchin's in here. Is Andrew Manchin here? I don't know. Anyway, he's a mentor, a great guy. But he came up to me. I'm sitting in the back, and he with like serious look in his eyes says, I saw a bear outside. We need to go scare it off. And my initial thought was, No. <laughs> Uh, we're in Prescott. Aren't there like people with like guns and stuff? I have like a pencil and I could pick up a rock. What? And he, he's like, oh, they're, they're, it's just a black bear. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know anything about bears at all. But if it's just a black bear, that means it can't be that bad. And, and so, I, and I'm thinking like, ah, I don't really want to do that. It's cold. Uh, can't we just like wait? Why don't we just go away? Like that's kind of, but I look around and there's like five or six guys he's already recruited. And so now there's this, uh, this, group of people who are looking at me saying, are you with us or not with us? You know, and I'm going, and so I decided in that moment that I cared more about their approval than my safety. And so <laughs> next thing I know, I'm walking out in the woods with a rock and a flashlight going like, and so Andrew kind of knows what he's doing. He's going, yeah, 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 making all these noises. And I'm like, are they pranking me? Is this how you scare off a bear? I feel like this could be a whole thing just to try to get, let's see how dumb we can make Seth look. And so there's a piece of me that's like, I don't think this is really happening. But anyway, uh, we found a bunch of trash cans knocked over, a bunch of grunting in the whatever. Ended up being just javelina, some javelina that were, you know. But then I remember in the movie Old Yeller, uh, the bear got scared off by the dog, but the javelina killed the bear. And so, or the javelina killed the dog. And so I'm thinking, these javelinas said, so anyway, that we, got, we got the javelina out of there. And I was kind of reflecting on the event, thinking, all it took was five guys going, let's do this. And I was like, judgment, you know. <laughs> what if it's spare? you know, I just updated my life insurance, so will family be financially okay? <laughs> Carrying a rock, walking through the... But it revealed to me just, and it hopefully reveals all of us, that we think of ourselves as having good judgment. Nobody walks around thinking, I suffer from poor judgment. Nobody thinks that. Everyone thinks, I have good judgment. I think clearly. I can do this. But what we see in this text is kind of this demonstration that all it takes is a little crowd, and your judgment kind of gets thrown out. It doesn't take much for the, the mob. You know, so a crowd uh, that's kind of, crowds aren't bad, but a crowd becomes a mob when it's against something, right? And so Jesus here is dealing with the mob. There is a crowd, and they're now against Jesus. And what we see here is that the, the mob effect, the crowd effect, actually really throws off their judgment. And the, kind of the driving point of this whole text in 7, 1 through 24 is verse 24. Do not judge by appearances. Crowds and mobs almost always default to judging by appearances. Are you with us? Or are you against us? And Jesus is saying, uh, judge with right judgment. So he calls the crowd. But what we're going to see in, here, in this text in particular is uh, we're going to look at the mob's ability to judge rightly. Then we're going to look at how Jesus responds to the mob's bad judgment and how Jesus' brothers respond to the mob's judgment. And this idea of judgment, it all goes, ties in. So judge, justice, 
judgment. They all kind of go together about the ability to evaluate and think about situations and, and righteousness, justice, all kind of goes hand in hand. And uh, can a mob evaluate justice? I mean, in theory, possibly. Uh, but what ends up happening is most of the time it's like social position that pushes a bad view of justice uh, by means of a crowd. And so what we're going to see in this text is that the big idea is that mob justice is not justice. God's justice is justice. And Jesus is going to call this whole crowd to task, and we're going to see how his brothers get whipped up into it, and then we're going to see how we fit into that mess of peer pressure. All right, let's pray, and then we'll keep going. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that we get to see you uh, resist the mob, resist the crowd in this text, and I pray that would give us courage and that you'd help us be appropriately nervous about our own ability to think clearly when we're on the other side of a crowd or a part of one. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's kind of the backdrop to this text right here is verse 7, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. So the after this is really two big major things. Um, Jesus had just healed a man on the Sabbath, and the Jews, the religious establishment, were mad at him because you can't do work on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man that's work on the Sabbath. They kind of think this guy's undermining uh, the way that we, he's, they're not undermining, they think they're under, that he's undermining God's law, but in reality, they are, he is undermining the way that they apply God's law. So he's not really, um, he's, Jesus is not throwing out the Old Testament. He's actually telling them, you guys don't get the Old Testament is the way that kind of functions. And so they get all threatened by Jesus. Then Jesus goes and feeds the 5,000. And then he gets this big crowd around him because he's been doing signs and doing wonders. And then they say, do more signs. And Jesus says, I don't think so. And then he opens his mouth and the crowd starts to thin because people like what Jesus does, but they hate what he says. This is pretty common now in our current culture moment. You find anybody who's Christian or non-Christian, people tend to like what Jesus does. He feeds the poor. He pushes back on the religious establishment. He is kind to the outcast. But you start talking about what Jesus says, and the crowd gets real thin pretty quickly. And so Jesus' brothers notice, hey, you're losing the crowd. Public opinion is drifting. Your, your approval rating is tanking. We need to start doing this. And so they come to him and say, hey, Jesus, there's this big festival in Judea. And it says that the Jews there were seeking to kill him because he was undermining um, their status quo. And it says the Jews at the Feast of Booths was at hand. The Feast of Booths was with huge, big crowd. People flock to Judea, and they go around. And it's kind of like, Jesus, this is your moment. You can win back the crowds. At this, there'll be a bunch of people there. You could do another sign. They say, hey, we've been going around in Galilee for about a year now, um, but if you keep doing these signs in secret, you're not going to be known openly. So they're going, Jesus, go public with your uh, miracle stuff. And Jesus, recognizing that his brothers are swept up in caring way too much about public opinion. His brothers are saying, this is your moment. Capitalize it. Win back the crowd. Verse 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. What are they trying to do here? His brothers, seeing Jesus do signs and miracles, have an obstacle to their own belief, and the obstacle to their own belief is public opinion. They've seen the signs. They've seen the wonders. But when the crowd has a thumbs down on Jesus, the brothers feel like, I don't know if I'm able to believe because of all this public opinion nonsense. And so what they're asking Jesus to do is to become a celebrity and to pursue fame. If you become famous, then maybe I can photobomb you. <laughs> you know, Jesus, go do miracles and I'll be there. Hey, I'm this guy's brother. I'm the famous guy's brother. This desire to be connected to fame, to connect to celebrity, to have a seat at the table. His brothers are feeling this pull, feeling the desire. 
See, I think if you talk to anybody in this room and you'd say like, is it a good thing to compromise your moral values for the sake of getting famous? I think everybody would say no. I think if you asked anybody, is, it, is, is you know, fame, do you think fame is good for your heart or bad for your heart? Most people would say fame is bad for your heart. Just like you'd say, you hear all the stories about people who win the lottery and then their life becomes a train wreck. You're like, well, I think that I would be the exception let me try it out for myself. I'll feel for myself. Like the other day, it was raining pretty bad, and um, I was watching my son, and we're te- he's learning a handful of words now. One of the words he knows is now is yuck, because whenever he touches the toilet, we have to say yuck, and he puts his hand in the trash, you say yuck, and so he learns yuck. And I open the back door, and I'm kind of doing something. I walk outside, and you know, it's raining, and he's had been raining, and he comes to me, and he has two handfuls full of dog poop, and he goes yuck. And my wife wasn't home, so I had to deal with it. <laughs> but I feel like this is like our heart, so we're going like, I know it's yucky, but I want to figure it out. I'll feel it for myself, you know. I will, I'll be the one, you know, I, I don't really care, but if I had 100,000 Instagram followers, that'd be pretty great, you know. Because I, I, we, we, the, 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 fame is when the crowd thinks highly of you. And the more your fame, the higher the view of the crowd of you. But what we see here is that Jesus is absolutely uninterested in the pursuit of fame for fame's sake, whereas his brother is saying, win the crowd. We need to win the crowd. Jesus tells them, look, I cannot win the crowd. Because what the brothers want is like, Jesus, we can do another sign. We can do another miracle. This time, you'll keep your mouth shut, and they'll keep liking you. And he says, that's not going to happen. Um, my time is not yet come. Your time's always here. The world can't hate you, meaning you don't have the courage to say what I say, but it hates me because I tell it that its works are evil. Like, just to be clear, we can try and get a crowd, but I will keep saying the things that they hate me for saying. So this public opinion pursuit thing is probably not going to play out like you want it to. You go up to the feast, I'm not gumming, he stays in Galilee. This is one of the confusing parts of this text. It says, verse 10, but after that, his brother's gone to the feast, then he also went up. So you're going... Ooh, whew, Jesus, caught in a lie, pretty obvious. <laughs> He's, you go, I'm not going, they go, and then he goes. And you're going, this is, but the, the thrust of this I want us to get is it does look like on surface Jesus kind of just is a flip-flopper here. But the whole point is the emphasis here that he does not go up publicly, but he goes up privately. They want him to go now to win the crowds. Jesus is not interested in win the crowds. So he's going, I'm not going for your reason. I'm not going on your timeline, and I'm not going to pursue the thing you want me to pursue. Because what you want to happen, which is Jesus wins the approval of the crowds by doing signs and keeping his mouth shut, is not going to happen. I think we see this all the time that we're like Jesus' brothers. We feel concerned about the approval rating of Jesus, and so we're dodging, skipping, and, we, and it doesn't take much for us to go, because so often our will is not really to be faithful, but it's to be a part of the crowd that's on the right side of history, quote, 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 right side of history. Like, it, it happens to me. I'm sure it happens to you. You know, the other day I was, you know, on Instagram wasting my life, which is the only thing you can do on Instagram, and I'm looking at other people's lives, not living mine, you know, and, and I saw, like, four or five posts in the span of a couple of minutes that were, like, saying things that I know are contrary to Scripture, 
but just because I like the relational connection and the, the approval of things that God doesn't approve of, and you're going like, do I, am I in the right, do I have the right view? Am I on the wrong, am I? Mm? And like, I've, there's like that moment of insecurity of, does God really say what he said? And, and this pull to be a part of the growing crowd and the crowd which is on the verge of becoming a mob because it becomes a mob when it's against something. Jesus is unconcerned with fame and the praise of mankind. And the reason he's able to do that is because he knows full well that faithfulness, the smile of God in heaven, the, the approval of the Father, trumps any type of praise of man. He's, so he's, he's really unaffected by their criticism, and he's really uninterested in their phony praise, their flattery. He's going, look, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because God's called me to do it. And if they're in or they're out, man. He has compassion for the crowds because he wants them to know the Father. He sees them as sheep without shepherds. He sees them as captivated by the lies. But he's absolutely unwilling to adopt or change who he is in order to gain their approval, which is the opposite of our current cultural moment. We're constantly being told to adopt and change to fit or to face re-education. Like we're trying to be brought along. So Jesus' brothers want him to earn fame. He's not interested. The crowd is divided, verse 12. There's much muttering about the people because they're at this big crowd. They're like, man, this would be a great moment for Jesus to show up and prove us something. Um, the crowd is divided. Some say he's a good man. Some say he's leading people astray. But verse 13 is the kicker. But for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Cancel culture is not new. The Jews were the conservative, status quo protecting, religious establishment. And if someone came along and started to, like, out, canceled. These people who were convinced we are right with God and they had hardened their hearts to being taught by God any further, there's a sense of arrival, there's a position of control, and they do not want intimacy with God, they want personal power and position that was given to them by the Roman government. And I know this because later on in chapter 11, um, they're talking about how this is chapter 11, verse 48. They say, if we let him, that is Jesus, keep going on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Our position in society is being threatened by Jesus. And guess what? And Rome had not been good to the Jews but all of a sudden, now they're Roman excited about, like they're excited about Rome because Rome gives us our position, and so we have to be pro-Rome, even though Rome is this kind of evil, corrupt deal. So they kind of have this spontaneous Roman nationalism, even though Rome was a corrupt, evil society. Jesus is threatening the Roman establishment, and the Roman establishment is what protects the religious establishment, and so the religious establishment is saying we need to kill Jesus. cancel culture, the mobs, whatever it is, the swept up protection of power, position, it's not new. Social media didn't create it, Twitter didn't create it, hashtags didn't create it. You can be mad at Facebook all you want, but don't blame them for the sin of man. But then Jesus, in the middle of the feast, here's what we're going to see. How does Jesus, so how does Jesus, he's unaffected by it, but how does he interact with the crowds? That's kind of what we see um, here. About the middle of the feast, verse 14, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. And I imagine Jesus' PR reps, his brothers, are like, oh gosh. When he teaches, that's when people get mad. He starts teaching. The Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? The Greek says, how does he know his letters? 
uh, when he's never studied. Again, they're saying he hasn't studied in our school. He hasn't gotten our certificates. He hasn't gone through our certification program. Where's his rabbi license? Who's this guy think he is? They're kind of going, we control the messaging, and all of a sudden, here's this guy in here who didn't go through our messaging conditioning program, and now he's out there speaking. How did he learn this stuff? And Jesus said, my teaching is not mine. It's from him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, if anyone's will is to do God's will, remember their will is not to do God's will. Their will is to protect their place in their nation. Their will is not to do God's will. Their will is to protect the status quo religious establishment. Their will is not to do God's will. Their will is to quell the uprising. If anyone's will is to God's will, they will know if my teaching is from God. What we see here is we tend to rationalize and intellectualize what is not rational or intellectual. Jesus is telling us here that what the heart wants, the mind justifies. This is basically the way all people sin every time, is we justify it in our mind, we make sense of it in our head, and we act in a way um, that is basically doing what we want, but in after the fact or before the fact, we say, here's why this is a good reason. Whenever we sin, whenever we rebel, it always makes sense in our heads because we've justified it, rationalized it. But on the outside, it can look foolish or obviously sinful. Like I think about um, this moment, probably the worst birthday party I ever had. I think it was my five-year-old birthday party, and we had this cake, and I was really excited about it, and there's all these kids, eyes are on me, you know, feeling great because eyes are on me. And I'm like, this is kind of a good moment. All eyes are on me. I kind of like this attention. It's pretty nice. I'm one of four kids. I don't have a lot of all eyes on me moments, you know. All these kids around, I'm going, I need to have, I need to keep this going. I need, I need to keep the attention wheel spinning, right? And so I spit on the cake. <laughs> I like this attention. I don't want this attention. Spit on the cake instead of blowing out the things. Um, I got spanked, had to stay in my room the rest of my birthday party while all the kids played with my toys that I just opened. And you look real stupid on the outside, but it made sense in my mind. <laughs> Has attention, wants to keep attention, does something to get attention. That happened. I got the attention. It was just not the type that I wanted. What the heart wants, the mind justifies. So they're trying to find a reason to do it. And Jesus is going like, look, stop making this, like even if you, a lot of you, maybe some of you are skeptics, maybe some of you um, left the church, maybe you're coming back, maybe you're in the church on your way out. Uh, I just don't meet a lot of people, especially like teenagers, college students. Most people leave the church because they want to, and then afterwards they read a book written by some atheist that justifies their decision. Most people who come to church come to church because they want to, and then afterwards read the book written by the Christian apologists who make you feel like it's a rational good choice. But our hearts lead our heads almost always. Almost always. That's what Jesus is getting at. Hey, you guys are all riled up, and you think it's about the law, but Jesus is going to teach them the law in a way they haven't heard taught in a while. He's going to make them look real bad, and not for the purpose of making them look bad. He's going to expose their hypocrisy. 19, verse 19, chapter 7, verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? And here's what he's about to say. This is the most offensive thing he says here. To the religious establishment, the teachers of the law, the ones who are all riled up about Jesus breaking the so-called law, none of you keep the law. 
And this, imagine Jesus' PR brothers going, well, now he's certainly dead. <laughs> you did, Jesus, you could have, you know, you, silence is always an option, plead the fifth, but you're just condemning, you're, you're, you're implicating yourself. So he's, none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, what's the answer for these folks? Uh, so if they were actually caring about God's law, if they were actually um, really preoccupied with justice, they may become defensive. Wait a minute, we do keep God's law. Who do you think you are? We keep the law, you keep the law, I keep the law. This guy's falsely accusing us. That's not what happens. They hear Jesus look them in the eye and say, none of you keeps the law. And their answer is, you have a demon. You're paranoid. You're crazy. Nobody's trying to kill you. Okay, so chapter 7, verse 1. The Jews are seeking to kill him. Chapter 7, verse 25. The crowd says, isn't this the guy the Jews are trying to kill? You're paranoid. There's no conspiracy here. You know, no one's trying to kill you. So their response to the judgment of Jesus is to lower the bar. Oh, nobody's killing anybody. Because Jesus goes, if you really knew the law and you understood that the punishment for breaking the law is death, then you'd all be killing each other because you're all lawbreakers. You all deserve death. What makes me deserve death any more or less than any of you people? Okay, you think I broke the law, I deserve death? Okay, well then everyone kill everyone because we all deserve death. And they go, oh, 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 never mind. We don't care that much. No one's killing anybody. Jesus answered Jesus, I did one work. I healed someone on the Sabbath. And you all marvel at it. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but it's from the Father. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Meaning, you understand that there's hierarchy even within the law of the Old Testament right? Don't do work on the Sabbath, but the circumcision, which is like a one-time thing that marks you as part of the people of God, um, you can circumcise on the eighth day if the eighth day is the Sabbath. They understood that, that the mark of belonging to God's people, to being a set-apart people who are meant to be a light to the nations, that you can do that work on the Sabbath. The Jews understood that. It's like, you have a category for work on the Sabbath, if it's circumcision. I heal a man on the Sabbath. I make a man's body well, and you're going to kill me? And this is the indictment, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances. What he's saying is, you judge by appearances. And by appearance, what he means is, you're judging based on whether the behavior fits into your social norms. You're judging on the basis of whether or not what I do fits into your box. You're judging me on the basis of whether I fit in to the way that you have applied the scriptures. You're not judging me on the basis of the scriptures. You do not care about God's law. You care about man's law. You're acting like you care about the law of God, but all you care about is your rigorous ability to maintain the status quo, which is that your law and your social status and your application of the law reigns. You judge by appearances, not by judgment. I had a mentor friend one time talking about judging by appearances. He, uh, he is a pastor, pretty successful in a big church up in Scottsdale, and he told me about how, like, the office, church office was here, he had a lunch appointment here, but his granddaughter, who was like six or seven, had a, a dance studio, and so he went to his lunch appointment, and then he knew that his granddaughter had a one o'clock uh, dance uh, class thing. And so he's like, you know, on the way back to the office, I'll swing by, see if I can say hi to my granddaughter at dance class, and then I'll go to the church. And so he drove by, and it's kind of one of those, there's a lot of them out here, you know, dance, dance, you know girls dance classes things and like where the window kind of comes up 
kind of like these windows, but the street's right there. And so you park on the street, and you walk up, and the window's right there, but the windows are super tinted. And so he parks, trying to say hi to his granddaughter, and he walks up to the window of the girls' dance class and puts his face up to the window and goes like this. <laughs> and then he sees all these people on the inside, mostly about seven-year-old daughters and their mothers, and he's like, I don't know these people. And they see me looking in the window at the girls' dance class, and there's people driving by, and they see, all they see is 65-year-old looking in the window of girls' <laughs> dance class, and he realizes, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> and so from the outside looking in, it looks like that guy's a creep, and most of the time, that's probably fair judgment in that situation. But in his own heart, mind, soul, he's going, I'm just trying to say hi to my granddaughter. That's not, and, but he, he, he got up to his church the next Sunday and apologized because uh, he got all these emails like, what's with creepy pastor guy doing creepy pastor things? I knew the church was creepy. You know? <laughs> and it's like, Ugh! and so he's going, I just, but we, we are so good at leaping to, it looks like this to me, therefore it's this. I connected the dots. Nobody else can, but I do. I, I can see clearly now. Um, but we talked about how crowds throw out our ability to judge and think clearly. And this is Jesus going, telling the crowds, you judge by appearances. And here's the irony part of this whole text, is Jesus is saying, you are trying to kill me, saying that it is because I'm breaking God's law. But in reality, you are trying to kill me because, based on your assessment of the social purpose of the law, really what's going on is I'm breaking your social customs and you're trying to kill me. But Jesus flips it on his head and says, okay, if we're going to do the people who break God's law thing deserves to die, guess who deserves to die? It's all of these people. And this is the, the great irony of this whole text is that Jesus is going to be killed by the mob later on because they say he's breaking God's law, but in their hearts they know it's because he's breaking their law. But Jesus lays down his life anyway, knowing that all these people deserve death and the only shot they have of not getting death is him dying in their place. Who is judging who in this situation? Because we, in our arrogance, and our atheism, in our smug, educated selves, believe that we are God's judge. God is real if blank. God is good if blank. We sit from a distance and make assessments about whether God is good or not, and we think ourselves as God's judge. And Jesus is flipping this on his head in this moment and saying, you, as the crowd and the mob, are judging me, but you have no ability to judge me. I am the judge. And he is the good judge who sees you have all broken God's law. I, said, child, have broken God's law. And he is the judge who takes the punishment of the judgment. And so if we see ourselves as the brothers of Jesus, or if we see ourselves as the Jews, the religious leaders who are protecting the status quo, or if we see ourselves as the crowd who are tossed to and fro by public opinion, I want us to recognize that the only true judge who can be trusted to not be affected by public opinion or social poll is the Lord Jesus, and he's judging us. And he says, lawbreaker. But he loves us, and he moves towards us, he doesn't tell us to clean ourselves up. He doesn't tell us to get better and then he dies in our place. Even though we have nothing to bring to the table. And so until you see yourself as a person who is judged and found guilty, but at the same time was given a way to have that judgment absorbed in the death of Jesus, you will constantly be tossed to and fro by the public opinion of you or the public opinion of God because we are social beings 
And if we think that we're just these rational thinkers, we're, we're way more led by belonging in our heart than, than we can surmise. And until we see ourselves as belonging to Christ, we will be tossed to and fro by the crowd. Mob justice is not justice, but God's justice, it's justice. And justice was delivered on the cross on our behalf. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for Redemption Gateway. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. I do ask that we as a people would be not swayed by public opinion, that we wouldn't try to engage in PR for Jesus, asking him to keep his mouth shut and keep his offensive things to himself, but that we would be people who are secure and stable, recognizing that our identity is purchased in full. And I pray specifically that we would not become just some new religious establishment who tries to maintain status quo, but that we could constantly look for the way that you are teaching us, that we'd have soft hearts and steel spines. God, guard us from the pursuit of fame and help us seek your glory above all else. In the name of your son we pray, amen.